If you've been with us recently, you know we are in the middle of a sermon series, as you see on the screen, titled Essentials of a Thriving Church. Today, I've titled our individual message today, Battling Poisonous Delights. Battling Poisonous Delights. In C.S. Lewis's popular kids' book, Chronicles of Narnia, there are four characters that make a frequent visit to the world of Narnia. Now, these four characters, if you've seen the movie or you've watched, I mean, excuse me, read the books, you know, the names of these four are Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. But one character in my mind always seems to stick out, and that character is Edmund. Now, it's not because he's the strongest, it's not because he's the bravest, it's not because he's the smartest. He seems to stick out because, because of the way that he was tempted, deceived, and he, and he goes ahead to betray everyone for a little fleeting, tasty treasure called Turkish Delight, right? You've seen the movie or if you've read the books, you know what happens with Edmund. Now, on Edmund's first visit to Narnia, he comes across the white witch, which is a metaphor for Satan. And as he talks with her, she charms him and entices him and offers him any delicious food that his mind can think of. And in thinking of what he wants, Turkish delight is what comes to his mind, right? And for a little bit of dessert, Edmund proceeds to rebel against everybody. He rebels against his brothers and sisters. He rebels against what's good and right and holy. He becomes a traitor to his siblings, to Aslan, which is the character for God in the story, and to all of Narnia. He is a traitor for a little bit of Turkish delight. Now, C.S. Lewis is, a, is masterful in crafting this picture of Turkish delight to show us how enticing sin can actually be. The whole story and picture of Chronicles of Narnia uh, has a lot of correlations to God and to our Christian walk. And this very small uh, little piece of Turkish delight reminds us how tempting sin is to us. We think that it is something that is good and delicious. And no matter what we have to put up with to keep that in our life, we are willing to do it even if God tells us it is harmful for you, it is poisonous for you, it is not good for you. Today we're going to be talking about sin. And you might ask, well, how does this correlate with a, a sermon series on the church? A, ser- a church that is thriving, that is loving God, who is wanting to serve God, they have to have a correct view about sin, and they have to not be scared to talk about sin and to address sin and to challenge each and every one that come uh, by God's word and tell them what God's word says about their sin. I mean, even the amount of times that I've said sin this morning, sometimes churches will shy away from that because they think, well, if we talk about sin, I mean, people are not going to be happy with that. And I don't want to make them feel bad or worse than they already do. Well, how are we going to help people get past the difficulty, the guilt, the shame? The only reason and the only way that we're going to do that is if we talk about sin and we tell them to bring their sin to the right person that will alleviate guilt and forgive their sin. It's only the person and work of Jesus Christ, but it has to start with the willingness of a church to speak truth about sin. That's what we're going to talk about today. And that's our essential of a thriving church today. We've talked about uh, three different essentials already. 
essentials we've mentioned. This is our fourth week in it. First three are essential church uncovers God's truth. That means he's committed to biblical exposition. Number two is a church that cherishes God's good news, which is the gospel and conversion. They understand it, they teach it correctly, and they challenge people with the gospel. Third essential of a thriving church is that they're intentionally committed to one another. And that's what we were challenged with last week. Committing to the body, being part of the body, loving the body and of Christ for God's glory. This week, we are challenged that the thriving church also cares about sin. A healthy, thriving church must care about sin. Now, when we talk about a church that cares about sin, it's not just that they mention it. It's, just, it's not that it's just something there that, yeah, we all sin and we all struggle, so we, we don't have to talk about it too much. No, a thriving church includes individuals in that church that want to understand their sins, the way that they get tripped up, the way that Satan tempts them, so that God can help them grow in their Christian walk. They have started a, a Christian relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and the way that that is started through the personal work of Jesus Christ is an initial repentance of their sin. They know that their sin has caused enmity between them and God, a distance that cannot be uh, dealt with without Jesus Christ. And they've given themselves over to Jesus Christ to say, Jesus, you're my Savior. You're the only perfect sacrifice that has paid for the sins of the world all those who accept you as their Savior, I am one of those. And because I've accepted you as my Savior, I no longer want to live for sin. I no longer want to do the things that hurt you and that do not go in correlation with your holiness. This is what a Christian individual looks like and a church family that looks like uh, that, that are following after Christ. They care about their sin. They care in a sense that they want to fight against it. They ask God's help to grow in holiness. That's called sanctification. Not just the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, but it's the life of a Christian after salvation. We still have a sin nature, unfortunately. The sin nature that started with Adam and Eve that's been passed on to all humanity. We know that the consequences of sin for those who accept Jesus has been dealt with through justification on the cross. There was that great exchange that our sins were placed on Jesus and Jesus' righteousness and holiness were placed on us as we accepted him. But unfortunately, we still have a sin nature as we live throughout this world until Jesus comes back and changes all of that. And we struggle against that sin nature. We see it in Scripture. We see it in the person of Paul, the person who is, does great, wonderful things for God, writes incredible books and challenges Christians in many ways, but we also see him struggling with his own sin nature, recognizing that he calls himself the greatest of sinners, and he fights against his, his sin nature. It's the same with us. But the thing we have to realize is that we have to, as a Christian, continue to fight that fight. Paul says, fight the good fight, continue in the faith, and that includes fighting against our sinful tendencies. The good thing that we count on is the work of the Holy Spirit. At, at salvation, God sends the work of the Holy Spirit. He helps to convict us of sins, to challenge us with what's right and what's good, and he gives us abilities to continually become more like him through sanctification. So the question we're going to look at today, 
With a church that cares about sin, what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, first, it looks like people who are personally repentant of and can continually fight against sin. A church has got to be made up. If it's a thriving church that's doing what God wants it to do, they have to view sin in the right way. And what does that look like? That looks like personal repentance and continual fight against sin. Turn to Romans 6 if you're not there already. We could take this time and really look at the whole chapter of Romans 6. But we're going to hone in really on verses 12 through 14. He starts that chapter talking about, no, we should not continue in sin that grace may abound. Some might have that thought, well, what does it all matter? We know that God just is going to forgive us in the end, so what does it matter if we really live for him, if, if, we, do, if we have sins that just hang around? Well, Paul addresses that specific uh, thought, and he says, by no means. If we've given ourselves to Christ, he's done and gone through great works to provide salvation to deal with the effects of sin. How can we then go ahead as a, a Christian who loves Christ and say, sin really doesn't matter that much. It's not that big of a deal because Christ has gone to great lengths for you. We come to verse 12 and he says this, writing to Christians, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for righteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. So he starts with a command for each of us who are Christians. He says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't have it control over your body. The sins that we have um, don't let them be the controlling factor, the driving factor of how you live your life and what you do in your life. When we think specifically about sins, we can categorize them in two different ways. Sins of com commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission are the sins that we actually commit. We do something that is not in line with God's holiness, and it is therefore a sin. The sins of omission are the second part of that. The sins... These sins are categorized by what God has called us as Christians to do, but because of our laziness or selfishness or whatever other reason, we do not continue in doing those things. We omit them from our life. Now, sometimes we only think of the sins of commission, the ones that we personally commit. God includes both of those and says, submit yourself wholeheartedly as an individual so that sins are not controlling your life the things that you put your time and effort and your thought process into, do they align with God's holiness and his righteousness? Do you find yourself putting all of your time and effort into those things? How about the things that God has called us to do? Reading his word, being a part of his family, caring and loving for one another. You know, uh, yesterday we had a men's Bible study and our topic was stewardship. And a lot of the categories we talk, talked about was what, what has God given you to steward or to have um, responsibility over? And that includes family, kids, wife, um, all those different things that God has given you over. Are you continuing in those things or do you turn away from those things? A lot of times we think, ah, you know, that's not a big deal. But really we would say that's a sin of omission, something that we're not following or doing. 
We, as a church and as individuals who care about sin, we have to personally repent of and continue to fight against that. What, when we notice that as a Christian, what, how do you respond to that is the question. Do you come to God in repentance? Do you humbly come and acknowledge the ways that you've failed, the sins that you've had? And maybe that's a question that you ask as you go away today. When is the last time that you have repented to God? Is it part of your normal prayer life with God? Bringing the things that you have failed in and asking God to cover them once again with the, the, the blood of Jesus? We know that his blood has already um, dealt with our sins for all of eternity. But do you continually ask him to forgive of the individual sins we continue to, to perform? As we bring our mind to that point, he's going to help us to grow in those areas. <clears throat> Turn over to Colossians 3, 1 through 10. Colossians 3, 1 through 10. The first part of our uh, number one here was personally repent. And that means acknowledging Jesus Christ as your Savior, um, acknowledging your sin, asking Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sin. After that initial repentance, then is when the fight starts. It starts there and then, and it will continue until Christ returns or until we see him in glory after this life is over. Colossians 3 helps us remember what this fight looks like. Let's look at verses 1 to 10. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, if you have salvation in Jesus Christ, you acknowledge him as your Savior, and if somebody asked you, how do you know you're going to heaven? And your, your answer is, well, Jesus Christ worked on the cross. That's what he gives us our baseline here. If you are a believer, then he goes on to say this, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Remember who you serve. Remember the purpose of your life is to, to give glory to God, to, to worship him in your actions, in your attitude, in your mind. Everything that we should do as believers should be wound up in that, following after Christ. Seek the things that are above, not the things on the, in the world. It's so easy for us to get tripped up by the things in the world and try to find our, our wants and desires in the things the world has to offer. This says, seek the things that are above where Christ is at the right hand. He's your Savior. He's the one that we... Then he goes on in verse 5, and he says, okay, let's get some specifics out there for those individual Christians who are working at this battle, who are fighting. In verse 5 he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked when you were living in them, but now you have put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. He starts in verse 5 and he says, put to death. I mean, that, that is not uh, language for a weakling, is it? No, he's saying, man, get strong. Get, under, understand what you're here for. And, you know, work out in a sense that you are thinking of what is not good and glorifying to God 
and work at getting rid of it in your life. Now we could talk about specifically what that looks like. Putting to death sin is the first step in our sanctification. We are thinking through what is not good and what is God is not, does not glorify God, and we're asking, how do I put that out of my life? Not just put it out of my life, but put it to death so it has no foothold in my life at all. Put to death. Don't, don't keep it around. Don't feed it a little bit. Put it to death. He says, put to death, therefore, what's earthly. And then he gives us a long list of specific things uh, that really help us out. They, they narrow in on what's good and what's, what's bad and what God determines is sinful. He, he goes on with that same list uh, in verse 8. But now you've put them all away. Put these all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. And I, I'd say the, the, the list in verse 5 seem to be the ones that more mainly come to our mind. You know, those are the big ones. You know, I don't cheat on my wife. I don't steal from my, my work. I don't do those type of things that seem big. But then, verse 8, he says, put, now put away from all of you, all of these, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't those seem like more specifically tailored to us as Christians? Like, He's not just talking about the big things. He's talking about the little actions in your life, the ones that nobody else knows about, the things that still hurt your Savior, that still grieve the Holy Spirit, and they, they still cause God to not be happy with his children when they live in a sinful way. He says, put them all away. Put them to death, not just put them away. In verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. A lot of the times here at the church, the way we talk about sanctification is the put off, renew, put on principle. Put off is to kill any sin or, or avenues of getting to sin that we, we can think of. And then we renew our mind in the spirit of his word. We continually put what's good into our mind so that we're Continually reminded of who we serve, why we serve. And then after that, we're also putting on, putting on what God's word tells us. You know, this battle against sin is a big one for us. And, and at times, each and every one of us have that understanding that this is too big for me. I cannot, I can't. It's my own sins, and I know I, where I trip up, I fail, I struggle. What am I going to do? Imagine with me for a minute that you found out that you are slated to fight the championship MMA fighter, okay? You've heard that this is your task. You're going to have to fight. Now, if you don't know what MMA is, it's mixed martial artists. And if you have seen any videos of it, they're in an octagon, and they are beating each other until one submits or is knocked out. Now, think to yourself, okay, wow, I have to fight this guy? Now, as you're given the instructions, the one thing that you're told is that you're going to fight him in about five months. And the one advantage that you will have over this person is that you get to decide what this fighter eats for the next five months. Now, if you're thinking through that, what are you going to give that person to eat? Well, you're not going to give him steak. You're not going to give him protein. You're not going to make sure he keeps strong and healthy because you know that when you fight him in that battle, man, he is going to demolish you right? No, you're going to say, I'm not giving him anything. I'm not going to feed him anything so that when I fight him, he's going to be weak. He's going to be feeble. I'm easily going to destroy him, right? Now, think about that. 
as the way that we fight our sin nature. You know, when we continually feed our sin nature with little tidbits of food or great meals that we give to our sin nature and our sinfulness, guess what happens? Our enemy gets stronger and bigger and he gets more of a foothold. You know, putting off God's word is this idea of cutting it off. Don't give it anything to eat. Turn away from it. Learn how to make specific steps and actions so that you don't fall in the same exact way. And that's what we're looking at to do. Number one for us today is personally repent of and continually fight against sin. If you don't fight continually against your sin, it's showing that you don't have a love for Jesus Christ, that you really care about what he did for you. And that's, that's going to our heart of, do we truly understand who Jesus is? Now, I'm not saying we're, we're not going to have uh, times of difficult battles in, in the fight against sin. We are, but we recognize them. We continually repent. We don't hold on to them. And when they're addressed to us, even by others or the church, we want help to get over them. Our greatest desire as a follower of Christ is to please him. Do that by fighting continually our sin. Well, what does it look like uh, for a church to care about sin? First, personally, repent of and continually fight against sin. That brings us to number two, mutually help each other in the battle against sin. Mutually help each other in the battle against sin. We are not called to fight against sin alone. And it's always better to be part of a team, isn't it? You've been there. Uh, Think of an army. Now, if one person was called to go fight a different army, they would quickly lose. But as an army gains followers and that group has a unified purpose and goal, they have tactics to try to defeat their enemy. It's the same with us. We have a group of believers that, to com- that commit to each other, that help each other, and we should be willing and wanting that group to help us in this battle against sin. Being a part of a team is great. Think of even team sports. I love basketball. I love uh, playing soccer growing up. But you know what? All of my talents and ability were not good enough for me as an individual to go play the team sport, Right? No, you you have other people that are better in different areas, you're better in a different area, and you help each other out. You're part of that team. It goes the same with our church life and our Christian walk. We are not called to do what we're called to do by ourselves. This week I was just encouraged uh, by the Lovins. I can talk about Hayden. He's not here today. All right, so I can talk about him. Um, No, but this last week, we as a church, we came around them. We prayed for them. Maybe you got the one call that... Uh, Their little baby, Alder, he fell, hurt his head a little bit. We were praying for them as a church family throughout the week. He was worried. He was scared. He wasn't sure if there were going to be any any long-term effects into the future. And they had a a long night of their on vacation down in Florida. Spend a night in the hospital doing all kinds of tests to make sure Alder's head was doing okay. Well, he just called me yesterday, and he said, Great news, praise God, everything came back, that there's going to be no lasting effects. You know, there's a little bump on his head still that he's going to have to recover from. Um, So praise God. But he says this to me also. He said, you know what else, though? I mean, I've been so encouraged this week. Uh, You know, after the one call went out, I had multiple people from the church texting me, calling me, telling me how much they care. And because we as a church family, we are a group 
that love each other, and that's how it should be. We, we can't do those things by ourselves. And even those little amounts of encouragement, they help so much in our Christian walk. Now, we can see the encouraging side of a church, but we also need to have that group that is willing to talk about sin together, to address sin together. That's part of the teamwork. You're not called to just fight your own sin battle. I'm, I'm called to be a part of that. I'm not called to fight my own sin battle. You're called to be a part of that. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. <clears throat> First Thessalonians 5, 12 through 15. Paul, writing to the church at Thessalonica, says this in verse 12. He says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourself. So first of all, he's calling our attention to this group of believers that have been given by God, individuals that are over them, to admonish them, to guide them and direct them. And that's a good thing. We want people that are over us. We think about in our culture today, in America, it's all about you, yourself. No one should be above you or over you. This tells us we should be thankful that God has given us helpful individuals that are over us, guiding and directing us in his word and in life. He says, respect those who lay among you, they're over you in the Lord, and admonish you. Even that word admonish, it's kind of a hard word to swallow sometimes. We don't like to be admonished. We don't like to be told something that we need to change or act or do differently than we are doing. A lot of times we automatically get defensive, right? This says encourage and labor, those who res- says respect those who labor among you and admonish you. Then it goes on to verse 14 and 15 and gives all of us as brothers and sisters in Christ specific job to do. It says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So he tells us as brothers, as those who are over the flock of God and over a church, we need to admonish, but also we are part of that interaction as brothers and sisters in Christ. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Now, he's giving all these different correlations as to, to what these individuals are going through. Some of the people in the church there are idle. That means they're not doing what they're called to do from God. And what does he tell? He says, admonish them. Be alongside of them in a loving way to say, hey, come along with me. Keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. Encourage the faint-hearted. Those who have been pressured and weighed uh, from life's problems and, and situations and even sin, what are we called to do with them? Well, encourage the faint-hearted. And he says, help the weak. Those who are struggling, those who are falling, we come alongside to love them. Not to put more guilt and shame on them, to actually care about them. And to say, hey, I'm here to help. How can I pray for you? How can we get together so we can work on this together and think through it together? This is an important part as we think about how do we fight sin. There are times when you are going to be in a situation where you feel like you, can't, you cannot defeat the battle yourself. Do you ever reach out to somebody? Do you ever say, hey, I know a, a mature Christian that, that can help me. I can at least talk about this with them. You know, a mature Christian is going to love you. He's going to care about you. He's not going to look down on his nose and say, oh my word, I can't believe you did that. 
I can't believe you're struggling with that. No, he's going to love that he sees you wanting to please God more than care about your own pride and your own reputation. He's going to say, praise God. You know, I know it's hard. There's times that I've struggled with different things, but I, we want to grow like Christ. That's, that's the atmosphere we want to have as a church, to say, hey, we're both looking at Christ. We both want to serve Christ. Is that your attitude? Or is it, hey, I've got to protect my reputation. I've got to look better. It's more important that I protect myself than really open up and be honest with people and ask for help. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This is a, a group of people who want to please God, who want to serve God. We're not called to fight sin by ourselves. It's, it's supposed to be a team sport. I'm on your team, you're on my team, and we're, we're doing it together. What does that look like for us? Well, first of all, it looks like being honest about your sins to yourself. Being honest about your sins to yourself. We don't try to hide them. We don't try to act like we are perfect people. We recognize our failures. And it starts in your own prayer life and in your own thought life. If you continually don't care if God is pleased or you're hurting God with your sin, um, you need to repent. And you need to get that right with God. You need to start thinking correctly and biblically about your sin. It is a, uh, a, a big affront to God. And we need to uh, ask God's help to see it and to repent of it. Be honest about yourself with your sin. Be honest about your sin with others. Be honest about your sin with others. You know, we've started men's group and women's group in the last six months. And that is a time for growth as brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and a time that's uh, just a little easier. Groups are smaller and we get to talk about a, a little easier real-life situations. Are you taking advantage of those opportunities? so that you can be honest and open and ask for prayer and ask for help. Be honest about your sin with others. Ask for help with continual sins. Ask for help with continual sins. Now, as soon as I say continual sins, maybe you have some things in your mind that are automatically come to your thoughts. You say, yeah, this is something I've dealt with for many years, and I, I, I want some help with it. I've thought about it, but I just haven't taken the steps. Well, uh, I have done a lot of biblical counseling. I've done a lot of training in biblical counseling. My door is always open, and Pastor Dan's door is always open. Or maybe you can think of another mature Christian that you come alongside of and ask for help. That is, that is not saying that I failed by myself, and I don't have enough strength and energy myself to do it. It's saying, hey, can you, can you help me think through this? What, what do I need to do? How do I cut this off? And, and when I cut it off, how, what do I need to put in? And, and, and part of, the biggest part of Christian counseling is helping someone determine a plan on how to do those things. Cut off sins that you've done, renew your mind, and then put on what, you, what, what God calls us to do. Of course, relying on God's strength and help to do that. Ask for help with continual sins. <clears throat> also, talk to others about their sins. Talk to others about their sins. Now, that's kind of a hard one for us to hear, right? Because, you know, we want to just keep to ourselves. But what if you saw somebody that was really struggling and continued in a sinful lifestyle, sinful action? Do we have a responsibility as Christians to help them out? I would say Scripture tells us we do. 
And in saying nothing and not being willing to love them in a very specific way, we're failing to do that. God says love them and be willing to talk with them about it. Now, that of course is not a, I'm going to beat you over the head with something you're doing wrong. We do it in a loving fashion, a, a fashion that shows them we truly do care about them. It's not me just calling out your sin because I got plenty of sins that, that I need help with. But it's saying, I see that you're doing this. You're living this way. And it's one, it's not pleasing to God, but also it's harmful for you as an individual to continue to live this way. It's, it's not going to be fun and a happy life. It's going to be harmful and difficult. God tells us those who live for their sin and continue in it, life's not easy. Life's not fun. No, sin leads you in a destructive path. And so when we care for someone specifically in a way where we come alongside them and address it, it is loving to that individual. <clears throat> so think about that with me for a minute. How would you feel today if a Christian brother or sister lovingly addressed a sin in your life? You know, uh, would you listen, evaluate, and appreciate what this other Christian was doing? Or does even thinking about an encounter like that make you defensive and angry and say, well, you know, you deal with your own stuff, I got my own stuff. You know, if we answer that, that specific question in two different ways, it's going to tell you if you're seeking to please God with your life or if you're seeking to please yourself with your life, right? Be thankful that God has given us people around us to live our Christian life with, to be part of his team with, we as a church need to care about sin. It starts with individually caring about sin. It goes on to mutually having each other's back and helping each other in this battle. But then the third one I want to look at today is that we as a church that cares about sin, we must collectively as a church call out sin and strive for holiness. We need to call out sin and strive for holiness. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brother, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So what does that mean? That means we, as a, as a gathered body of believers, we hold each other accountable for a Christian life, a holy life. Again, we don't do it in a scary way where we're looking at to find somebody's hidden sins. But as sins of individuals that are committed to the church and have joined with the church, if it is, it is found out that they have a sin that they will not repent of, that they will not get rid of, um, we call them to obedience to God's word as a church. And if they're not doing that, we as a church dismiss them from our membership. Not to be mean, because we as a church want to collectively as a group come alongside them and say, no, we as a group recognize that's not living for Christ. Remember when you, you accepted Christ? Remember when you joined our group and you said you wanted to follow after Christ? Now, we, we want to help you with this, but if you're not going to repent of your sin and turn from it, we've got to acknowledge to the people in the church and the culture around us that this is not what a follower of Christ looks like. We cannot have you continuing with us and in a way where there's, there's no break in relationship. Now, we do that to the individuals who have joined with us, who have asked willingly to be part of that uh, responsibility among each other. And what does that look like? Those are those who have joined to the church. 
They've willingly said, I want the church's help in my Christian walk moving forward. We don't do this type of situation or church discipline to anyone who just walks through the door. You know, it's to those who say, I'm a follower of Christ and I want this local church's body of believers to help me live the Christian walk. That's who we're talking about. Brother, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. He's talking to the Galatian church. They have a responsibility in restoring and calling out sin to keep holiness inside the church. The church is supposed to be the picture of who Jesus is. If we allow sin to continue, we are, we are messing up that picture of who Jesus is. And we need to be faithful in doing that. When we do that and we, we, uh, we do church discipline in the church, um, we only do it to people who don't fight their sin. Now, that's an important for us to realize. When we come alongside of people, church discipline is the final step in a process that we as a church follow. But that process of church discipline, it starts with one-on-one conversations. It doesn't go any further than that person's repenting. If he repents at that first interaction with a, saying, hey, we see this, this is not following after God, and that person says, yeah, yeah, I'm struggling with that. And I want God's help. I want your help. Hey, we don't follow through more of the process than just that because we want to help them. It's not when a person just has a lack of knowledge about their sin. Maybe a new believer says, hey, I, I didn't know that that was a sin. Well, we don't follow through with church discipline in that. Maybe someone says uh, that they had a lack of skill to change. They, you address something with them as an individual and they say, I don't know how to do it. That's what biblical counseling, that's what, that's what discipleship is between two individuals of the church. You're trying to help each other grow. But when someone has a lack of fight uh, to fight against their sin, they say, I know that's a sin, but you know what? Uh, I'm not going to stop my adulterous affair. I'm actually divorcing my wife, and I'm going to go live with my new girlfriend. That's a clear indication that they don't care about Jesus Christ and that a life that pleases Christ is not top priority and that they truly don't have a heart that is showing they want to follow after Christ. We as a church, we have to help them. One of the ways that we do it is showing them that their sin is, is, is big in God's eyes, calling them back to repent of that sin. Turn to 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. We're going to look at a couple passages here that remind us and tell us specifically that we as a church are to be partaking in this type of church discipline and, and helping those in the church uh, fight their sin. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's talking to the church at Corinth, and as he's talking to the church at Corinth, he's going to address a specific sin that is a known sin in the church, and he's going to call the church at Corinth to take action against this individual, um, and this we'll see it as we read it. 1 Corinthians 5.1 says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So what we have here to start out the, the, the verses, a man is having a sexual relationship with his father's wife. Um, and this is so egregious that even the Greeks in that area know that this is something that should not be done. And the church at Corinth, they're allowing this. They, they know it. Everyone there knows that this is happening 
And they're saying nothing to bring this person back from sin. His mo- well, probably as a mother-in-law. Mother-in-law. Yep. Yep. So that's what we find happening here. Let him who has done this be removed from you. So the church has given a specific action to take against this outright, uh, against God sin. It says, remove this person. Let's continue. Verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present with you in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, those are some, I mean, those are some direct, strong words, right? Look at verse 5. You're to deliver this man to Satan. In removing this person from the church gathered there at Corinth, you're saying he's following after Satan and he's not following after Christ. He's not someone that we can affirm his salvation. And he's saying, deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that's in the body, in, the, in, in what's going on in life. But then the end goal of it is found at the end of verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. As we're helping people do this and we're calling them out and even addressing them in a very specific way, putting them out of a church, it's telling them as a collective body, you're sinning. God is not happy with your sin. Come back. Repent of that. And when they do that, the church is willing to take them back in and say, yes, he's repented of his sin. We praise God for that. And that's the, the goal at the end, is that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse 6, same passage. Your boasting is not good. He's talking to the church. Don't be arrogant and don't think it's good and okay to just have sin among you. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, leaven, leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity. Verse 9. I, write, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or of an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. What do we get in this verses 9 through uh, 14 here is probably the clearest indication of Scripture of how a group of believers commit to one another and they know who's inside of that group and they know who's outside of that group. It says that we as a church are not called to judge outsiders. He's saying those that live a sinful life outside of the church, we're not called to come alongside them and call them to holiness because they're sinners. That makes no, no, no sense in our mind that we would have that responsibility. But he says, no, the people who are inside the church, who are part of that gathered body, we are to call to holiness. They've accepted Christ. They've asked for our help as a church body in their sanctification. We need to hold them to a life of Christ, for Christ. So that's what he's saying. We are to call each other to holiness inside the church. Now, in verse well, chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, that is a, um, you know, 
a very clear indication of someone who doesn't care about following after Christ. And he says, in a very quick way, remove them from you so that God's holiness is preserved in that. But that's usually not the sense that we get when, you know, Christians are living together and sin happens among each other. It's not a huge, big one like that. But how do we deal with sin among living as Christians together? For that, we have to turn to Matthew 18. It gives us a specific um, process here that we have to follow as a church. How do we deal with sins among people as we live together as Christians? Matthew 18, 15 through 17 is the passage that Jesus gives us. He says this in the passage, verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So what does he give us here? He gives a, 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 a four-step process on dealing with sin among brothers, among Christian brothers and sisters. And he says the first thing is that when a sin occurs and takes place with individuals, what is our first responsibility? We find it in verse 15. We are supposed to go, to that, go individually to the sinning brother. We are supposed to go talk to him and say, hey, I saw that this happened, this sin, and either that's including your part in it, but helping them see their sin in a situation, calling him out, and saying, hey, I see this. I don't want you to, to, to fall into the temptation of continuing in this sin. Go individually to a, a, a sinning brother. And then it goes on, verse 16, to say, if that sinning brother does not repent and does not turn back to Christ in his repentance in that, we have a second step to take. If no repentance happens, then the individual goes and gets some other people, two or three, which is a small group, and we go again to the sinning brother. And this is by the witness of two or three that see the same thing about this sinning individual would try to help call this person back from living a life of sin. Now, it's important to see that God is very, uh, very purposeful in keeping the group as small as he can until that person's repentance is not done. If the person repents at any one of these stages, the process of church discipline, which has started with the individual, stops. And great, you've repented. How can we help? How can we love and reconcile? But if that person continues to hold on to his sin, not repent of it, God is willing to make that circle bigger for the purpose of helping that person and keeping the church holy. So, you went to the individual brother, he's not repented. You've brought now two or three people with you that are mature Christians, they still have not repented. You see that this is a long process. It's not like a one-time thing and you just, you know, jump to, hey, they're being put out of the church. We go to the third step. If there's still no repentance after two or three people have talked to them, then you bring the matter to the church in verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now the church, again, the first time that the church hears about someone's sin is not being called and asked to make a decision on putting someone out of the church right then and there. The first time that they should be talked to about it said, this is what's happening. We've talked to this individual. We want the, the prayer warriors of our church to come alongside of them. If you have a chance, an opportunity 
to take them out to lunch and talk to them. Be purposeful about saying, hey, we as a church are concerned about you. We, care. we don't want you to live a sinful lifestyle that's going to be hurtful. You know, we as a church come alongside of that. And after a process of this person is still unrepentant, he's still holding on to his sin, then it says the church, it's his job to put them out of the church, the church's job. End of verse 17, And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now this is just a designation of saying, you're purposely saying that no, he's not a follower of Christ. He's like a Gentile, someone that does not know uh, does not have the purposes and plans of following after Christ, and a tax collector was a known sinner back in the day. What are you doing by designating this person this? Is that you're trying to, in your mind, say, I need to witness to him. We need to call him back. We, we don't want to act like there's nothing wrong when he has a, he's living for the sin that he loves. God calls us always to repent of our sin, to, to turn from it. We as a church family have a responsibility in that. Today, we have been challenged as a thriving church. We want to be a thriving church. We have to care about sin. It starts on the individual level. We as individuals have to care about our sin. Then we also have to be part of that group that's caring about sin, as a church family is. And then as a church family, if a sinful situation comes up, we need to follow the right process to keep our church holy and to love people well. And loving sometimes is doing the things that might be difficult, but it's for a purpose of loving them in the right way, calling them away from sin. A healthy, thriving church must care about sin. I want to finish our sermon today with a poem from John Monsell is his name. In his poem, he talks about sin. Let me pull that up. Okay, and my clicker is gone. There we go. He, he titles his poem, My Sins, My Sins, My Savior. He says this, My sins, my sins, my Savior, they take such hold on me, I am not able to look up, save only Christ to thee. In thee is all forgiveness, in thee abundant grace, my shadow and my sunshine, the brightness of thy face. My sins, my sins, my Savior, how sad on thee they fall. Seen through the gentle patience, I tenfold feel them all. I know they are forgiven, but still they're pain to me. In all the grief and anguish, they laid my Lord on thee. My sins, my sins, my Savior, their guilt I never knew, till with thee in the desert I near thy passion drew. Till with thee in the garden I heard thy pleading prayer and saw the sweat drops bloody that told thy sorrow there. Therefore, my songs, my Savior, e'en in this time of woe, shall tell of all thy goodness to suffering man below. Thy goodness and thy favor, whose presence from above, rejoice those hearts, my Savior, that live in thee alone. I hope that's our goal today, is to live for Christ, even when we are, see our, our sins in front of our face, that we turn them to him. We rejoice in his forgiveness, his work on the cross, so that we can have a relationship with him. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for our time in your word. God, we ask your help. We ask um, for the Holy Spirit to be present and active and working. We know that it is. Help us not to uh, put off the work of the Spirit or to grieve the work of the Spirit. God, help us to embrace it and, and, and to, as we're convicted of sin, to repent of it, to turn away from it, to be willing to um, 
ask others for help in it. God, we're so grateful for your justification that we know the finished work on the cross has dealt with the penalty for all of eternity. And, and, but we still need your help in this life, Lord. So help us to put in the work to help, and uh, we know that you'll meet us in that. Thank you for our time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.